Guardian Unlimited. Hello, I'm Alison Benjamin, and this is Environment Weekly. Coming up on this our first show, I talk to David Adam at the UN climate change meeting in Bali. What is likely to be the outcome of the two weeks of negotiations to map out a new protocol when Kyoto expires in 2012? We'll also hear from the Tories on their energy policies. Just how green are they? And we find out why one town in Britain is doing its bit to be more climate friendly by making Tuesdays a car-free day. This is Environment Weekly from Guardian Unlimited. With me in the studio is John Vidal, The Guardian's environment editor, and Larry Elliott, economics editor from the paper. The main story this week has to be the UN climate change talks going ahead in Bali. Delegates from over 180 nations and observers from hundreds of NGOs have been meeting to begin negotiations for a new deal to succeed the Kyoto Protocol, which expires in 2012. David Adam, The Guardian's environment correspondent, is there. An announcement will be made on Friday. So what can we expect? What we can say is what it's not going to be. It's not going to be the final solution. It's not going to solve the problem and save the world. What it hopefully will do is put us on a very firm footing towards another two years of negotiations to really hammer out this global deal to succeed the Kyoto Protocol. In a sense, we're walking a tightrope here where it's a big achievement not to fall off. Where the tightrope leads, we're not quite sure, but at the moment we know that we're walking along it, which is good. And what about developing nations like India and China that are really key to the future of climate change reductions? Well, China has been very positive this week. That's one of the themes that is emerging. Um, They've been very engaged, very keen to show that they are doing stuff and that they are willing to do more. Uh, India, less so, I think it's fair to say, but they're still there talking what we're not going to get from the developing countries, and no one really expects them to do it, it is, a, is a target of, you know, we're going to reduce our emissions by such and such, which is what the developed countries really need to be doing. It, it's a bit of a difficult dynamic because, on the one hand, you've got the US and Canada, certainly earlier in the week, urging developing countries to do more. And the developing countries, as they have for a while, have been saying, well, look, this is your problem at the moment. We produce a lot of carbon. We've got a lot of people. Our per capita emissions are way below yours. And you cause this problem. You know, it's the West emissions which are responsible for almost all of the global warming that we're experiencing now. And so China, in particular, want the US to make some kind of concession before they sign up to anything that's going to require them to do too much. That was David Adam in Bali. John, what do you think is key for uh, there to be any hope of a a post-Kyoto deal? I think it's got to be a target. There's got to be some kind of target, some kind of timetable set up. These negotiations can't go on forever. They've given themselves two years. This is step one. Uh, But they need to come out, I would say, on Friday night with something which says, let's get to 20% or 40% or whatever by a certain date. That would really set the thing off. Um, At the moment, it's it's pretty deadlocked. Um, But the nature of these things, as David says, is that everything happens at the last last few hours, actually. And it's a a late night session which tends to bang heads together. It's a stupid way of doing things, but that's what happens. And Larry, what do you think is key in terms of sort of economic drivers to getting a post-Kyoto deal? I think there are two things. I think from the uh, developed countries' side, from the American side, there has to be some commitment from the big developing nations for them to cut their emissions at some point. I think that was what stymied Kyoto for the Americans, the fact that China and India weren't on board. In terms of the developing countries, I think they have to have some guarantee that they are going to 
be taking action which is not going to harm their development. Their first priority, particularly for India, but also for China, is that actually they want to get their people out of poverty and they don't see why they should do all the heavy lifting here when, as um, we heard earlier, most of the historic emissions have come from the developed world. So I think that there has to be some action taken on all sides, but most of most of the heavy lifting is going to have to be done by the West. How significant is it that the US say that they won't agree to any firm targets for cuts on, on Friday? I think it's deeply worrying. I think that even if they got to the 25 or 40% cuts in emissions that have been talked about, that's nowhere near enough. I mean, most of the studies show that in order to stop global temperatures from rising by more than two degrees centigrade, which is even itself actually quite dangerous levels of global warming, you'd have to cut emissions by something like 80% by 2050. So even if we get to 25 or 40%, it's only getting halfway towards what really needs to be done. So that, to me, seems to be the absolute bare minimum that has to come out of this week's talks, because time is running out. This is not like the global trade talks, which have been going on for five or six years, and they can drone on for another few years. This is really serious stuff. And the longer the global community delays taking action, the worse the problem is going to be and more that will will need to be done. The irony is that uh, we talk about the federal American government, which is effectively in the dark ages. It really has not got it. Uh, But on the state level and on the city level, there's an enormous amount of work actually being done. So there's 600, 800 cities now in America which have effectively signed up to their own kind of deals which are semi-Kyoto level. If and when there is a new American president um, and there is a, a, a new political will, the change could come fairly quickly. If, there, if there's a political will, I think it'll be interesting to see what the Democratic candidates actually offer over the next 12 months because they rely very heavily on corporate um, donations to their campaigns. It'll be very interesting to see exactly what Hillary Clinton promises to do on on environment if and when she becomes president, which I expect she will do. I mean, I think you're right. The Republicans really are in the dark ages, but it'll be be fascinating to see whether the Democrats are really that significantly better because, after all, Clinton was the president when Kyoto was was signed in 1997 and he couldn't get it through the Senate then. So the the, the corporate lobby in the States is very powerful. Is it coming behind, though, all the announcements last week of the British companies which are now saying that they, they do actually do want targets and timetables. I mean, is the American business coming behind I think this? there's some parts of the American business community which would like targets because the, the American form of capitalism is actually very dynamic. You set them a target and say, go off and you've got to design a car that does this, that and the other. They will go off and do it. They're very innovative people. So, you know, that's what they're finding in, in states like California, where if you set quite strict targets, then the economy does adapt quite quickly. So I don't really think the Americans have got that much to fear from global targets. It's just the sort of old guard in some industries, the big oil, big automobiles and so on, which don't really want to change that much. They see it as a, as a bottom line issue and, and they will resist it to the end. And, and what about the global carbon trading system? You know, how, how significant is that in all, all of this? I think it's part of the solution. I mean, I, I've never really seen the global carbon trading system as a magic bullet. Some people see it as, 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 a, as, a, as, a, as really as the, as the way out of this. Gordon Brown does. I think he puts far too much emphasis on it. I think it's one part of the jigsaw and quite an important part to get a proper market price for carbon. That's important. But it can't get away from the fact that we everybody needs to start cutting their emissions. You can't actually get rid of the problem by shuffling onto somebody else. So a carbon trading scheme would be good as part of a multifaceted campaign, which would involve cuts in carbon emissions by everybody, technology transfer, 
and helping poorer countries to adapt to climate change that's already happening. But it has to be a package. It can't just be a one-off. I think I, I would agree. I think Brown is uh, putting all his eggs in one basket and uh, basically saying to the consumer, the voter, you don't have to do anything about this. Leave it all to the money men. They will do parallel economy. It, no, it won't necessarily work. A lot of people are very worried about the way it's going. Well, George Monbiot's one of those. The Guardian columnist and author was uh, among the thousands of people from around the world who took to the streets at the weekend to protest about governments in action over climate change and he thinks we need to take a much more radical approach than the talks in Bali. That's the sound of the Climate Change March, which is just gathering now in Grosvenor Square in London. And what we're doing is trying to sound the alarm to the leaders who are gathering in Bali at the moment to say, these measures you're talking about don't even go one-tenth of the way towards the cuts that we need to make if we're going to stop runaway climate change. The latest science, according to the figures in the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's report, suggests we need pretty well to decarbonise the whole global economy if we're going to prevent two degrees of warming above pre-industrial levels. And two degrees is really a critical moment because beyond that we see very serious droughts in continental interiors which means that a lot of people are going to go hungry, billions suffering from water stress. We see possibly the irreversible breakup of the Greenland ice sheet which could eventually raise sea levels by seven metres. And we also see a series of positive feedbacks kicking off. That is climate change causing more climate change, which means you get two degrees, you're going to get three degrees. You get three degrees, you get four degrees. The problem gets snatched out of our hands. We have to stop it getting there. And that means we need an infinitely more radical process than the one currently being discussed. We need to be looking at how we can switch away from fossil fuels almost in their entirety. So the purpose of this march is to say that business as usual just isn't going to be good enough. The pathetic trimming and snipping which they're talking about in Bali just isn't going to be good enough. We need to look at how we have an economic turnaround similar to that that happened in the United States when it entered the Second World War. We'll have more about climate change and what we as individuals can do here in the UK to reduce emissions later in the show. I'm Alison Benjamin and you're listening to Environment Weekly from Guardian Unlimited. Still to come, news on Guardian Unlimited's Tread Lightly initiative and Lucy Siegel on why it's not ethical to buy cashmere this Christmas. It's an incredible environmental story and when people say that fashion doesn't matter, they really don't understand the impact, the environmental and social footprint of fashion, which can be huge. But first, here's our news roundup for this week. Pioneering project to save Sierra Leone forest from loggers. Greenpeace calls BP's tar sands plan in Canada an environmental crime. Wind energy to power UK by 2020, says government. Business runs out of green energy supply. Ministers told to use eco-celebs to promote green message. We've heard that the RSPB is saving two forests, one in Sumatra and one in Sierra Leone. John, do you think this is the way to stop deforestation? 
I think the jury's out on that. It's certainly happening all over. Guyana came to Britain only a few weeks ago saying, will you take over our forests? Will you run them for us? Uh, developing countries everywhere are being besieged by very large conservation groups, charities, organisations who are offering to buy up uh, rent out, uh, take on very long leases, very large areas of hotspots, places which they believe are uh, extremely in danger. So this is a phenomenon of the times. It's led by very rich people. It's led by very rich organisations. It's extremely off-putting and very objectionable in, in, in many ways as well because it's a, it's a kind of eco-colonialism. It's basically saying, you, the poor, can't run your, your forests. We'll do it better for you. So a lot of people in Brazil, a lot of people in Central Africa are very upset about this. Uh, governments aren't too worried. They get their forests managed cheaper. But isn't there a, an element of truth in that? We've had you know, so much logging and so much deforestation. No, it isn't. I, I have to say that uh, anything the RSPB t- can do, the, the Malaysians or the Indonesians or whoever can, can do it just as well if they're given the resources. They know perfectly well how to maintain forests and look after them. They haven't got the money to do it. It's as simple as that. And the World Bank has actually said that they want to include forests in in carbon markets, something that Friends of the Earth are vehemently opposed to. I think that it would be a strange thing for the World Bank to do. There's lots of things the World Bank could be doing, and I think to include forests in carbon trading seems to me to be really not being able to see the wood for the trees, really, to be honest, (laughs) to to have a bit of a pun there. The World Bank has got lots of issues that it needs to address, and I would have thought that including forests in carbon trading is really is very, very low down on my list of priorities for the World Bank. I mean, it needs to start looking at sustainable development in its programmes. It needs to actually start having a, a real attempt to actually get funds into poor countries to help them to adapt. Um, and I, I, this really is a bit of a diversion. I, I'm not sure if it is, actually, because I think that what we forget is that 8, 12, 15% of all our emissions actually do come from deforestation. So if your intent is to stop, stop emissions, then one of the best ways to do it is to try and prevent the forest coming down. Um, and it is because the forests tend to be in, in, in the very poor countries. It is a conceivable way of getting large amounts of money to them. It remains to be seen. I mean, well, provided, provided you do get the money to them, that's what I doubt, but, really. It's not the attempt to stop deforestation that, I'm, yeah. that I have a problem with. It's the attempt to, to link it with the carbon trading thing, which is not working properly in any event. And this seems to me just to be another way of making something that's not working not work in the future. So that, that's, my, that's my problem with this, really. Yeah, and the, and the World Bank's got an absolutely atrocious record in any kind of forest management. It's trying to do a whole lot of stuff in the Congo Basin at the moment. And it's mired in corruption. It's, it's uh, not a bean has got anywhere near the people who actually need it. And it's just going into the pockets, basically, of a few loggers who are running circles around them. Mm. BP, we hear, are backing a tar sands project to extract oil in Canada. Greenpeace says it's going to be an environmental disaster. And we've also heard that Shell has pulled out of solar power. You know, what's going on here? I thought BP had rebranded themselves as beyond petroleum and we keep seeing Shell ads that are demonstrating how interested they are in the future of the environment. Two, two things are happening with the, uh, with the tar sands, I think, uh, coming together. The first is that people are starting to really worry about what's called peak oil, the fact that oil is going to start running out pretty soon. We're at the, close to the maximum actual um, production of oil and it's going to start running out from, from traditional supplies. So there's an awful lot of pressure on, on the oil companies to find new sources. And the second thing is that uh, the oil price has been going up and up and up. So whereas four years ago it was $20 a barrel thereabouts, it's now five times as much. It's nearly $100 a barrel. So 
quite a lot of oil in, in inhospitable places or very difficult to get at places or oil that's not particularly uh, nice stuff, it's actually not, not very rich, is, is actually now being looked at very, very closely by the oil companies. So the tar sands in, in Canada, it takes an awful lot of energy to extract the, the oil from the tar sands and it's very, very environmentally damaging. But as far as the, as the companies are concerned, it looks a lot more feasible with oil at $100 a barrel than it did at $20 a barrel. And they can obviously see as always with these companies, uh, they can see big profits mm-hmm. at the end of it with, with the oil price where it is. So I, I think it's, 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 it is, it's, it's absolute massive climate crime to, to do what's being planned for the tar sands of Canada. But uh, the economic imperatives point in that direction and they work against the, the interests of the environment, in my view. And is that the reason why Shell is pulling out of solar? I don't know why Shell are pulling out of solar. I think it's a very, very short-sighted decision because in the future, at some point in the future, solar is going to have to play a very big part of our energy needs. And when the oil runs out, as it eventually will do, then oil companies are going to have to become energy companies. They've tried to rebrand themselves as energy companies over the last five or ten years. And having talked the talk is about time they started to walk the walk, in my view. I agree. I think Shell has always been less interested in solar, more interested in hydrogen power. Uh, that's where it seems to be putting its, quote, renewable stuff. It sees its, its future very much going in that direction. BP, to be fair, I mean, these are only fig leaves. I mean, they are still very large, dirty oil companies. Let's not forget that. But uh, BP has tended to take the solar. Shell has tended to lead on the, uh, on, on the hydrogen. Whether that is actually what's going to happen, I don't know. The UN's annual development report, released in the run-up to Bali, said vulnerability to climate disasters was heavily concentrated in poor countries. Bangladesh has always suffered more than its share of natural disasters, but the recent cyclone is only part of worsening climate instability. Annie Kelly was out there last week for The Guardian. In Gabtoli, on the southernmost tip of Bangladesh, villagers are still searching for their possessions in the wreckage of what used to be their homes before Cyclone Sidis smashed through their community last month. Many of them lost their lives and 95% of their houses were destroyed. People here are used to disasters. Bangladesh is the most disaster-prone poor country in the world and geographically cursed by flooding, cyclones and tidal surges. But the villagers in Gabtoli say they have never witnessed a cyclone the strength of Sadir before. And while climate change didn't cause Sadir, scientists and climate change campaigners are warning that a rise in global temperatures and sea levels will make weather-related disasters like Sadir more frequent and more intense. Mm. Nilifra Hanif describes how a 20-foot tidal surge destroyed her house and ripped her daughter from her husband's arms as he clung to a palm tree. They found her body four days later, more than 15 kilometres away. But even before Sadir, the villagers here say they were facing other climate-related problems. Rising sea tides have caused the salination of the groundwater, which has made their fresh water source undrinkable. And unpredictable weather and rainfall is making it difficult for them to grow the crops they need to supplement their diet. Fifty kilometres away on the tiny island of Ashar Shah in the Bay of Bengal, the situation is even worse. It's home to 2,000 people who scrape a living drying fish on raffia mats strewn down the beach. Cyclone Sadir killed almost a third of the people who live here. 
Rising sea levels have also meant that this community have had to move almost three kilometers inland over the past 10 years as the water claims more of their island. They say they may now have to join the steady stream of climate change refugees flooding to Bangladesh's crowded cities. Environmental campaigners are now saying that traditional relief effort is no longer sufficient to help people like those in Ashachar deal with the implications of climate change. Instead, development agencies are saying 50 million pounds a year must be spent helping countries such as Bangladesh adapt to our increasingly unstable climate. Thousands were saved by cyclone shelters in Sadir, and local relief organisations say that international funding for more measures, such as early warning systems and adequate housing, could make a huge difference to millions here. And as the Bali Climate Change Conference moves into its final days, I asked Sylvester Halder, Deputy Director at local agency Heed Bangladesh, what his message is to the rest of the world. The globe, the climate change is affecting the entire world. And we being a play community that are living close to the vulnerable areas, the effect of global warming and the melting of the ice is having an impact, uh, rising the water sea level. It is having an effect on the human life in the poor countries much more. The greater is the impact. So my request would be that it's a concern for the entire human race and the government should respond accordingly so that one part is affected, the other part is also affected. If, they, if a poor world is affected, the rich world is also affected. If the rich world is affected, the poor world is affected. So we are living in a global village and we all need to take precautionary measures. And the leaders of the big world, of the rich countries, have a big role to play in reducing the effect of environmental change. That was Annie Kelly reporting from Bangladesh. Now, if you're thinking of what to buy for Christmas and you're tempted by these cheap cashmere sweaters in the shops this year, Lucy Siegel, the Observer's ethical living columnist, has some words of warning for us. Well, I've seen my first cashmere advert on the way here. It was on the back of a newspaper. It said, get it, give it, cashmere, which is a sort of reductive strategy that tends to apply to these uh, massive consumer trends. Cashmere has been the main Christmas fashion gift for the last three to four years. It's been in uh, Tesco's, Asda, right away the sort of value fashion chains. And it's being sold for under 30 quid generally. So you have to ask yourself, what kind of cashmere are you getting? Well, I can tell you what sort of cashmere you're getting. Mainly very low quality. A couple of studies have found that the fibre tends to be very thick and often mixed with nylons, etc. So the impact of this crazy consumerism on Oxford Street and elsewhere is being felt on the Alashan steppes in Inner Mongolia. Now, this uh, traditionally tribal area is populated by herdsmen who are direct descendants of Genghis Khan, no less. And they have increased their herds of goats to thousands and thousands of animals. Now, they're little feet, their little hooves, break up the vegetation on the plains and they're actually starting to demolish the structure of the plains resulting in desertification and a huge dust cloud that then travels over China, collects pollution and then has been monitored as far away as the west coast of America. I mean it's incredible, it's an incredible environmental story and when people say that fashion doesn't matter, they really don't understand the impact, the environmental and social footprint of fashion which can be huge. Now China 
China last year imported 53,000 knitting machines, which kind of tells you they mean business. So no wonder we're seeing the trade move from Scotland, where it's pretty much gone, and Italy. And also in Mongolia, which used to add on the value to the cashmere from the goats by weaving and producing the fibres. Now that's actually just lost. That's really gone. So it's putting even more pressure on those herdsmen. Now, by contrast, I think I have found the most ethical sweater yet. It won't be out till April. You won't be able to see it till then. And it's by a collective called Better Thinking, betterthinking.com. It's taken two years to establish the right fibre and the right mechanism, and everything has been calculated in environmental and ethical terms, from water use through to dyes, through to spinning, through to weaving. The cotton comes from Peru. It's a cotton knit, and it will be spun and knit at the John Smedley factory in Dar- where there's a closed loop system so we're not going to see any dyes going into the river uh, where the water use is very very closely monitored and it's an effort to bring knitwear back home Mike Betts is the guy behind the design and the idea but there's been input from 14 different countries with hundreds of different people on a blog and saying what they want to see from the sweater and a huge debate going on for two years about how to make the most ethical sweater I asked him what project he's going to take on next because I wondered if he's going to take consumables one by one and he's quite interested in a couple of different ones like you know pens and coffee cups but then if each one takes two years it's going to be a very long drawn out process but maybe that's what we need to find the real ethical solution. Lucy Siegel there on why we shouldn't buy cashmere for this Christmas at least. We've got suggestions for lots of eco-friendly presents on our ethical living blog. If you've got any gift ideas for us or you want to give us your thoughts on any of the topics in this show, then please go to blogs.guardian.co.uk slash ethical living. Up and down the country, people and communities are doing their bit to make Britain a more climate-friendly place. Rebecca Hosking is probably the most famous for her campaign to ban plastic bags in Mobbury, Devon, which has since been adopted by more than 50 towns and cities. We're going to feature some of the lesser-known green campaigners on this show. This week we've gone to Bristol to find out from Chris Sunderland about Tuesdays becoming Tuesdays. Hi, my name is Chris Sunderland and I'm standing in the streets of Bristol listening to the traffic and I want to introduce to you a campaign we've recently launched in Bristol called Tuesday. It came to me that to respond to this huge issue of climate change that humanity is now faced with, that the people are the ones to lead the way. We can't wait for the politicians, we can't wait for the various authorities They're tied down, deadlocked, they're not going to do it, and they're not going to do it in time. And people are aware now of the issue, and I think people are ready to act. So what we needed was an idea, and what I came up with was this Tuesday. Choose to leave your cars at home one working day every week. Let's explore some other way to work and travel. Let's play with this idea of Tuesday as a day to reinvent our lives. The exciting thing was people smiled, it caught on, and we've gathered a great team of people us here in Bristol. And and the task is to catch the public imagination. Our challenge is to cut the carbon footprint of the city, to actually make it count now. At its heart, Tuesday is a dream. It's a dream that people are willing to act on climate change. It's a dream about our human creativity and our willingness to adapt. Okay, well, I've come now to a, a quiet place in the city, which for me speaks of what Tuesday's about, because... It's about finding space away from the noise of the city to reflect on what's going on in the world and to reimagine our lives. I I dream of of cities that are living in a different way, of streets where people can play on the street, meet their neighbours, of neighbourhoods reinvigorated as 
we reimagine our lifestyle. That's Tuesday for me. That was Chris Sunderland. If you want to find out more about his campaign, go to Tuesday.org. That's C-H-O-O-S-E-D-A-Y. And if you know of a green campaigner you think we should feature on this show, tell us at blogs.guardian.co.uk slash ethical living. Now, if you don't live in Bristol, but you want to make your carbon footprint smaller, you could join the Guardian Unlimited's online community Tread Lightly. By signing up to our weekly pledges, you can reduce your own CO2 emissions. Pledges so far include switching to energy-efficient light bulbs, washing clothes at 30 degrees, and taking showers instead of baths. Jessica Aldred is here to tell you about this week's pledge. So this week on Tread Lightly is the first of three pledges where we're focusing on what users and readers can do to have a more green Christmas. Um, The first pledge is about switching on your Christmas lights for less hours. So we're actually asking people to turn them off for longer periods of time so they're saving carbon, saving money. We're asking them to try and not to have big outdoor displays which are probably the worst offender in terms of carbon emissions. And next week our pledge is going to be looking at the carbon footprint of toys which get shipped from China. Um, They aren't made sustainably, they're not recyclable, they probably don't last for very long. The pledge for the Christmas week is actually going to be asking readers to try and cut down on the amount of waste that they have over Christmas, so thinking about things like food waste, paper waste, recycling as much as you possibly can. Also this week on the website we're going to be publishing a green Christmas guide, so it's going to cover everything from waste, recycling, buying a sustainable tree, what to do with it afterwards, recycling your Christmas cards, so we're trying to give our readers as much information as possible. So you can sign up to this pledge and join our green community by visiting www.guardian.co.uk forward slash environment forward slash tread lightly. Thanks Jess. Now if the Conservatives win the next election the power to generate our Christmas lights and all our electricity at home could be self-generated within a decade. The Tories green energy plans aim to create a mass market for decentralised microenergy so we can generate our own electricity supply mainly from renewables and sell back any surplus to the national grid. But are these policies really green? John, yesterday you were quizzing Peter Ainsworth, Shadow Environment spokesperson. Peter, um, last week you came out with some extraordinary stuff, feed-in tariffs. What, what does all this mean? It doesn't, sound, to... it doesn't sound very sexy, does it, it feed-in tariffs? No, but it is. Tell me what's going it on. It is sexy. What do you um, think? We need to do far more in this country to improve the amount of renewable energy that we're generating and, and using. We're rock bottom of the league table across Europe, and uh, we've been looking at the way other European countries have managed to lever up their renewable industries, and we found that there's a huge lesson to be learned, and in particular from Germany, but also the Netherlands and Denmark, where there are very substantial amounts of renewable energy being generated. So you're going to reward people yeah. for generating their own energy? What it comes, what it comes down to is that uh, people who, in, who take the trouble to invest in renewable energy in their homes or in their communities uh, will get a fixed price, so they'll know the payback period up to around 20 years. In Germany, it's halved the cost of installing this kit, and there are now 250,000 people employed in the industry, so it's, a, it's an all-round winner. Do you think it's going to happen here? Uh, I think we've got to make it happen. Is it just uh, going to reward the poor or the re- reward the rich? Absolutely or? not, because the, under the scheme we've devised, the, your energy price will stay the same, but when you're actually generating energy and selling it back to the grid, you're able to get a profit from that. So uh, it, it should, in the long run, 
mean much lower energy prices for everybody. The wind power people are telling me that, uh, that you're going to uh, take away all their grants and this is actually going to reduce, it's going to hurt renewable energy more than anything. What do you think that? Well, that's absolutely untrue. Uh, all existing contracts will stay in place. There's this thing called the renewables obligation at the moment. Uh, this is what has failed to deliver renewable energy on, on a sufficient scale. We'll, we'll leave in place all the plans that people have got under the renewables obligation and bring in the feed-in tariffs uh, in parallel initially. We think that this will be much more attractive. To Do you think people the will be, in Germany? I know that the people are, can, can pay their mortgages with the electricity they generate. Can well, that's you? the ideal. I mean, the, the ideal, and I'm not saying we'll, we'll get there anytime soon, is to have every home a, a powerhouse selling energy back to the grid and making money out of it. Is this the logical extension of the Thatcherite revolution where every man or every person should have a home, own a home, now it should be every man should have a power station? It fits completely with our belief that people should be empowered far more than they are, that great big old-fashioned centralised ways of doing things aren't going to work in the 21st century. And this is genuinely about delivering power to the people, literally. So it's a philosophical move as well as... Well, as a well it fits very much with our philosophy of, of, of local empowerment. Um, but it also fits with our philosophy of not messing up the planet. What about the million-dollar question, nuclear power? There, If ever you had sort of big centralised energy, there you have it. What is the, the Conservative Party position it on It is big, it is centralised, no question about that. And it is wasteful too. I mean, one of the problems with old-fashioned generating uh, is that it, we lose a huge amount of the power before it ever hits a single light bulb, and that's as true of the nuclear industry as it is any other. We're not saying you can do away with a national grid. We're, we're not saying that you can completely rule out nuclear. I think it would be irresponsible to do that. But are you putting yourself in a position where potentially in 10 years' time or 5 years' time you may not need nuclear power, as Germany is doing now? Well, uh, I very much hope that um, the proposals we've announced will go a long way to, to bridging what's known as the energy gap. I mean, there's a huge amount more to do with energy efficiency, of course, particularly with existing homes, but uh, it's a no-brainer for, for all new buildings. Mm. So in an ideal world, I mean, the, the most efficient power station is the one that's never built because it's not needed. <laughs> Good stuff. Now, if you were in Bali, what would you be saying? Would you be committing Britain to 60% as, as Britain is at the moment, or would you be going straight for 80%? The key thing is not the percentage in 2050, when no, no existing politician is going to be around to shoulder responsibility for what has happened but to base everything on the science. And we, are, we know from the overriding scientific evidence that a two degrees centigrade rise is, uh, is the limit beyond which things get very dangerous indeed. So it's whatever it takes to stick to two degrees centigrade on a, on a global basis. But the scientists basis. are telling us it's 80%, they're even telling us it's 90%, and I've even heard it over the last few days, it's 100%. Um, so, yeah, mean, it's not getting any easier. I mean, there's no question about that. Yeah. And the longer we've sat on this issue for at least 20 years, I'd rather see the scientists setting these targets, not politicians, because mm. when politicians set targets, mm. uh, you, you get all sorts of short-term uh, influences in, involved. It's the two degrees centigrade rise that we've got to use as our yardstick, and the percentage decrease in CO2 emissions follows from that. Yeah, there's another part of the party which argues very strongly that uh, there's got to be more industry, there's got to be more cars, more airports, more roads, more... I mean, what do you say to that? Well, it's very interesting. John Redwood's report advocated the use of feed-in tariffs, for example. So, I mean, the, there is not a gap in the, in the way that people sometimes... But he, he also advocated more airports. He also advocated more, more, more cars and more roads. Yeah, and all these reports that we've had are recommendations for Shadow Cabinet to determine. 
it's undeniable that we need to have economic growth, but what we've got to do is to decouple that growth from growth in things that are damaging the environment and, and threatening, as we've seen with the Stern Review, the economy of the future. So uh, all these things have to be weighed up and balanced. Mm-hmm. And you know, I've repeatedly said on airports, for example, it's crazy for the government to go around talking about climate change and then ushering in a massive expansion in airport capacity in this country. The things just don't tie up. We will, I can promise you, be coherent on these things. That was the Conservatives' environment spokesperson, Peter Ainsworth, talking to John Vidal. So, John, were you convinced? You listen to the environment spokesperson, it's absolutely fine, it sounds great, and then you talk to the economics person, and actually realise there's two different, there's two parallel paths going on, and uh, it's not coherent at the moment. Uh, on the other hand, they are they're, they're lobbying some good questions in government, and they are helping to set the agenda. But there's two different wings, I think, of, of the opposition at the moment. And which one finally wins, I have no idea. Larry? Yeah, I think that the problem for the Tories is that they can't make up their mind whether they want to be a traditional Conservative Party, which obviously has a very strong green appeal, looking after the countryside. The traditional Conservative Party probably was a green party. But the, the Conservative Party over the last 25 years has been taken over by a radical free market party. And so you've got these two things in tension. They can't really make up their mind whether they want to be a radical Thatcherite free market party, which builds airports and lets people drive wherever they like, or whether they really want to be a traditional Conservative Party that looks a steward of the countryside and, and, and the environment. And until it actually decides which sort of party it wants to be, it's, it's not really going to have a coherent view. I think some of the ideas the Conservatives are coming up with, the feed-in tariff, I totally agree with. And I think there's, there's some consistency with, with what they're saying, which is empower people, take away the state and actually make, make people make the right decisions for themselves. All that's good, but I don't think you got, are going to actually get a coherent policy in government until they decide whether they want to be radical or conservative. You can't be both at the same time. Well, that's all we have time for in this first Environment Weekly. My thanks to John Vidal and Larry Elliott. Thanks also to the producer, Ian Chambers. And don't forget to tell us what you think of the show by going to blogs.guardian.co.uk slash ethical living. Environment Weekly will be back in January as a weekly podcast. In the meantime, you can get all your environment news from guardian.co.uk slash environment. Guardian Unlimited.